Hey, good morning, Faith Family. I want to say hello to those that are gathered in Lakeville and our venue as well. I invite all of you, if you would, to turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4 is where we're going to pick back up this morning in our series we started a few weeks ago uh, called Peculiar. We're talking about what makes uh, Christians different, what makes Christianity unique, uh, what makes us peculiar. And uh, we're about to wrap this series up. Next week will be the last uh, sermon. We'll get into chapter 5 and finish up the book. Um, <clears throat> I feel like we could spend about another three years in the book. There's so much still there. But I, try to, I like to try to give you an overview of, of what a book is about when we look at it. Uh, if you're here uh, this morning kind of visiting, this will help give you an idea of what we've talked about thus far. So you'll notice here on the screen, this is kind of an outline of the first four chapters of what we've talked about. First of all, the Christian life is hard. Right? I mean, just because you're a Christian does not mean that life's going to be easy. This book is written to Christians who are being persecuted and facing trials and difficulty. So life is hard. The Christian life is hard. But Peter says, we as Christians have a peculiar home. That is, we don't ultimately belong here. We're exiles. We're strangers. Our citizenship is in heaven. In addition to that, we as Christians have a peculiar hope. That is, your story, if you're a follower of Jesus, is a salvation story. From beginning to end, your story is about the redemption, the grace of God, and that's going to be revealed in the last time. So, brother, sister, you're going through cancer, you're dealing with a loss in your family, you're, you know that life is hard. Listen, you have hope, and ain't nothing going to take that away. That's what it means to be a peculiar Christian. We have a peculiar hope. And we've been called to a peculiar holiness. That is, God has set us apart from the world for the purpose of displaying Him in the world. Uh, we want to glorify God. We want to image God. We want to be a witness for God. Well, you say, well, pastor, how do we do that? Well, Peter gives us some ways. And the first one, you don't like, and I don't like, but that is submission. Our submission is our mission. That is, the way we respond to the authority that God's placed in our life has everything to do with our witness for God. What we looked at last week was our embracing suffering and adversity uh, for His glory and His purposes in our life. Christians are to suffer differently. And then this morning we look at uh, that we're called to serve, uh, that we're called to a peculiar Service, And we're going to pick that up here in chapter 4 and verse 7. And so I'll ask if you're able to stand at all of our locations to please do so as we honor the reading of God's Word. So that's kind of the whole first four chapters that then lead us in here to verse 7. Peter writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, The end of all things is at hand, and therefore be self-controlled, sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, Keep loving one another earnestly, since, lover, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Would you pray for me? Pray with me now as we go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thanks for the joy of being gathered uh, now to 
Uh, be under the authority of your word. Speak to us. Uh, give us clarity to our life. Um, there may be many here today who are distracted by so many other things, and we need focus. We need to be alert. We need to be self-controlled for the life that you've called us to. That's what your word is about today. So, Holy Spirit, come teach us, we pray, to the glory of Jesus. And God's people said, amen. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> it's no doubt one of the most disappointing uh, sports stories of the last decade. Uh, even if you're not a big sports fan, if you follow football even casually, uh, you have heard the name Johnny Manziel, uh, a.k.a. Johnny Football. Uh, Johnny Manziel played uh, college football at Texas A&M, and his freshman year, he set all kinds of records. For instance, uh, the only freshman to pass for over 3,000 yards and rush for over 1,000 yards. He also received a lot of awards. Uh, he got the top quarterback award. The O'Brien Award was uh, All-American, All-SEC. He, he won the Heisman Trophy uh, his freshman year. And regardless of what you think about Johnny Menzel, uh, if you ever saw him play uh, college football, you were absolutely amazed at his ability. Let me give you just one example of that. Snap from Patrick Lewis. Four-man Alabama rush. Got him. No, they didn't. No, they didn't. Oh, my gracious. Yep. How about that? Can't teach that, can you? And you can't defend that. So coming out of college, he's the, he's the talk. Everybody's just, the, the, the sky's the limit for Johnny Menzel. He's got this amazing ability. And so in 2014, uh, the Cleveland Browns draft him in the first round. And expectations are high, even for Cleveland Brown fans, right? Uh, everybody can't wait. Uh, they're ready to go. There's excitement. The future is bright. Uh, but if you know his story, uh, Johnny's life quickly spirals out of control. Partying, casinos, in and out of drug and alcohol treatment centers, allegations of domestic violence, and on and on. And his NFL career ended about as fast as it started. His agent left him. Nike dropped him. And the Browns cut him. It was a waste. But you know, just a few weeks ago, it hasn't been long at all, Johnny Manziel informed the sports world that he's going to come back. He's making a comeback to football. In fact, this was the quote that was put out on social media. You'll see it here. He's a quote, I refuse to let my entire life of sports from the age of four be squandered by partying. In other words, and let's hope that he's right this time. Let's hope that this is true. He has come to the point where he said, I'm tired of wasting my life. I've, I've looked at how I've invested my time. I look at what I've done with my talents. I look at what I've done with the opportunities that have been given to me, and I have squandered them, and I don't want to do that anymore. 
And most of us know that feeling. We don't like that feeling of something being wasted. Uh, maybe it's wasted time. Have you ever got to the end of your day and you just thought, what in the world did I even accomplish today? It's like a total waste or, or wasted money. Have you ever bought something that like stopped working after a week and you're like, what a piece of junk. That was a total waste of money or a wasted relationship. You gave someone months or years of your life for what seemed like nothing or what may be the biggest tragedy, a wasted life. You start asking, did my life count for anything? Did I spend my time, my talents, the opportunities that I was given for something that actually matters? Faith family, that is exactly what Peter is concerned about in the lives of those he's writing to. He's concerned about it for our lives. He does not want them to waste the opportunity, the time, the talents that they have been given. See, here's what Peter knows. Peter knows that when you're suffering, when trials come into your life, it's easy to lose your focus. And before you know it, you've wasted the opportunities you've been given. Look at what he says in verse 7. He says, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded. What Peter is saying here is, I want you to be focused, that is controlled. I want you to be alert, that is sober-minded, so that you don't waste what you've been given. You don't waste the time, the talents, the opportunities that God has given you. Why? Because faith family right here, Lakeview Venue, you don't have long. You don't have long. Your life is a vapor. Like you had children and literally 24 hours later, they graduate. At least it feels that way. You take the job and it feels like it's no time and you're retiring. I mean, anybody here could just give testimony to the fact that life goes by so fast because it's a vapor. But then you add to that the fact that we believe that Jesus could return at any moment. Like literally, Jesus could return while I'm preaching. It'd be the best sermon ever, all right? Even I agree with that, all right? I mean, listen, it can happen at any moment, which means you don't have long. You don't know how long you have. Life is a vapor. Jesus can return at any moment. The end of all things is at hand. Uh, how many of you uh, had a mom like my mom that would say, uh, go clean your room because your father will be home soon? Right? Now, she didn't say he's going to be home in three minutes. He's going to be home in 30 minutes. He's going to be home in, in two hours. She never said that. She just said, your father is going to be home soon. And what that meant was you need to get about your business, doing what your responsibilities are. You don't want your father to come home and find you lazy. Now, my mom may have meant that out of guilt. Peter means this out of gospel. Christian, we have a responsibility. We've been given life. You've been given time. You've been given talents. The end of all things is at hand. Be alert so that you're found responsible. 
when the master returns. Peter is simply saying what Jesus has already said. Peter loves to rip Jesus's words and just reteach them. Uh, it's all throughout the book of First Peter. Let me show you what Peter's likely referring to. Uh, Luke chapter 12, Jesus teaches this to Peter when he says, verse 35, stay dressed for action. We won't discuss the implication of the alternative. Anyways, and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home for a, from a wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. In other words, they can't wait for their master to come. He's a good master and they can't wait for him to return. Are you like that, Christian? Are you like that, Christian? You can't wait for Jesus to return. Keep reading. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds what? Awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in a third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. Here's his point in verse 40. You also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. What's he saying? True disciples are ready now. How are they ready? Because they're prepared for action. They're, they're doing the responsibilities they've been giving to do. They're not wasting the time that they've been entrusted with. But they're responsible until he returns. Tom Schreiner, my New Testament prof, wrote a commentary on First Peter. He writes this. This gets right to the point. This is good. Listen, listen. The New Testament never invites believers to withdraw from the world because the end is near and gaze at the skies. That's what a lot of Christians do when you start talking about prophecy and end times. They just want to gaze and talk about it. Schreiner goes on to say, the imminence of the end should function as a stimulus to action in this world. The knowledge that believers are sojourners and exiles whose time is short should galvanize them to make their lives count now. Faith family, if not now, when? You ain't getting any younger. And Jesus is getting closer. And so because the end of all things is at hand, be alert. Now verse 7 ironically flows out of verses 1 through 6. The things you learn in seminary. Go back to verse 1 and see this train of thought that Peter is talking about that leads us into verse 7. Go back to verse 1. He says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. We talked about this last week. What does he mean by ceased from sin? Verse 2. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, that is, the rest of your life, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. He's not saying you never sin again. He's saying your life has a totally different priority, amen? You have a totally different focus in life. Your life is now focused on the will of God and living for the things of God. Verse 3, 
The time that has passed suffices for doing what the unbelievers or the Gentiles want to do in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatries. With respect to this, they're surprised when you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. What does Peter, everybody right here, Lakeville Venue, what does Peter keep grounding living a focused life now in? what you know is coming. We believe in a judgment. We believe that Jesus is coming. We believe that the master will return. So the implications for how you live matter. This is an interesting verse. Quickly, verse 6. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. Peter is not saying we go around to cemeteries and preach the gospel to dead people. He's saying the gospel was preached to the people who are now dead. They heard the gospel, and that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. This is just kind of an interesting side thought real quickly. Listen, brothers and sisters, if those believers that have gone before us could come back and speak to us, what do you think they'd say? You think they'd say, oh, you got plenty of time. Or do you think there would be a sense of urgency to say, the time is now. Don't waste your life. Faith family, the next event in the redemptive timeline of redemptive history is the second coming of Jesus Christ. Do you believe that? Do you live like that? Never as much as amens on that one, all right? Because that's what Peter's saying. Because the end of all things is at hand, be sober-minded and alert. Will you say, well, what do we, what do, we do to get ready for his return? How, how do we live now in light of the fact that he could come at any point? I know what we do. We buy bottles of water, and uh, we get Tang. Anybody remember Tang? Tang. Um, and we, we build uh, underground bunkers and get things that are flammable, and, and uh, we make rapture videos. Any of you church people remember the rapture videos? Uh, the videos that your family members who don't know Jesus are going to watch when you're gone? Please don't, all right? Just go ahead and tell them now. There's an idea. Anyways, what do we do to prepare for the end time? Or maybe some of us might build one of these. I'm excited to show you my little project I've been bragging to you about. <laughs> this is a spider hole, dude. Yeah, the whole big area just underground for, uh, for me to live in. <laughs> it's right in the middle of the roadway, too. A spider hole is a combat term widely used in the Vietnam War. It is a camouflaged one-man foxhole about three feet deep and seven feet long. Doug plans to use them to hide in plain sight for three to seven days at a time. This is where I would be at the uh, end of the world. Home sweet home. I don't even know what to say about that. I didn't even know there's actually a television program that's all about how people prepare for the apocalypse, for the end of all things. Now, I say that because that's how most people think about, we start talking in times, we start talking about Jesus's return, that's where everybody runs mentally. I gotta get my underground bunker, I gotta get my, my bottles of water, and, and I get it. No, 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 no. How do you get ready for his return? Three things Peter gives you. The first is you pray. You pray. Read verse 7 again. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. The response to knowing that Jesus is going to return is not building an underground bunker. It's getting on your knees. 
Why? Prayer makes you alert to the opportunities in your life. Preach, preacher. Prayerful Christians are alert to God's opportunities, and Christians that are alert are committed to prayer. If you know Christ is coming, it ought to drive you to be a Christian that prays more focused. Now, Peter, of all people, should have known this. We looked at this just a few weeks ago in our Conflicted series. Listen to Matthew chapter 26 and verse 40. This is after Jesus' prayer in the garden. It says, He came to the disciples and found them what? And He said to who? You can be louder than that. Said to who? So could you not watch with me one hour? Now watch. Pun intended. Watch and pray. Do you see the connection between being alert and prayer? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing and the flesh is weak. One of the ways you live a life that is alert, mindful of Christ's return is you're a praying Christian. Now let's be honest because we're honest here at Berean. We talk about the struggles of the Christian life. Prayer may be one of the biggest struggles in the Christian life. Anybody with me? Like, here's what I mean by that. I don't talk to a lot of people that, that struggle with um, uh, wanting to study the Bible or people that will even memorize the Bible or, 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 you know, will come to church. But I talk to a lot of Christians that say, uh, I really struggle in my prayer life. Anybody with me? Like, I've never, I don't think I've ever had this conversation in like 20 plus years of ministry where somebody said, you know, I kind of got the prayer thing figured out. You know, I'm good. No, all of us know that there's areas of growth for us when it comes to being more intentional in prayer. So who likes practical things that you can apply? Well, let me give you five things, uh, whether you are not currently or are but need to go deeper in your prayer life. Here are five uh, recommendations I would give you to be more focused in your prayer life. Number one is this, uh, set aside a place. Set aside a place. Maybe it's a closet. Maybe it's a car. Maybe it's a room. Maybe it's at church. Maybe it's a park. But but get a place where you can go and just spend time with the Lord. Number two is set aside a pattern. Make this a pattern in your life. So every morning when I'm driving to work, every morning when I go for my run, Every day when I go to the gym, every time when I take my lunch break, when I go for a walk at night with the dog, whatever it is, I've got a pattern in my life where I'm taking intentional time to commune with the Lord and talk to God. Number three is set aside a plan. That is, here are the people that I'm going to pray for. Here are the needs that I'm going to pray for. Here are the categories. Like, I'm going to pray for our political leaders. They could use it. I'm going to pray for my pastor. I know he could use it, all right? I'm going to pray for my church. I'm going to pray for my family. I'm going to pray for people that I work with. I'm going to pray for the loss that I know. I'm going to pray for my neighbor. And you just list out. There's all types of categories and and individuals that you ought to be praying for. Number four is set aside a people. 
That is people that you can pray with, people in your missional community, a Christian friend, a coworker, uh, your family, a classmate, whatever it is, have people to hold you accountable to praying with one another. And then lastly, is you got to make this a priority. Nothing's going to change until you make prayer a priority in your life. But listen, listen, everybody, Lakeville venue, the spider hole bunker of an end time faith is the prayer closet. The spider hole bunker of an end time faith is the prayer closet. I would visualize it this way. You know you're ready for Jesus to come, not when you do this, but when you do this. That's when you're ready for him to return. Here's the second thing. What do we do to prepare for the end times? What do we do to prepare for Jesus' return? Uh, it's not get bottles of water. It's focused prayer. And secondly, it's fervent love. Pick up at verse 8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Now, underline that. I'm going to come back to that in just a minute. Love one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another with out grumbling. So Peter here now talks about the call to love one another. Do you want to be ready when the master returns? Do you want to be about the responsibilities that he's given you to do? It is prayer and it is love and it is a love that is an earnest love. Now the Greek kind of word image for earnest love, fervent love, is a love that bends, stretches, but does not break. Anybody feel like this today? Like you got somebody in your life that is stretching you to the point you just want to snap. Don't point, all right? But we have people like this in our life that stretch us and we're to love earnestly. Now, why would our love need to stretch but not snap? Because love covers a multitude of sins, the text says. Listen, you got people that are going to persecute you. You got people that are going to say things about you. You're going to have people that are not going to treat you the way you would like to be treated. You're going to have people that sin against you and they're going to stretch you and they're going to stretch you and they're going to stretch you. But if you you're about the responsibility the master has given you to do, you will keep on, say it, loving. So what does my life look like if I'm waiting for Jesus to return? It looks like this. Because of love. I mean, not only because love covers a multitude of sins, the text says, but, but earnest love is a love that stretches but doesn't snap uh, because it shows hospitality. Now, you could argue that that's a different category. I actually think it's a way in which you express love. doesn't really change the point of the text. But do you know what hospitality is? Hospitality is not being Betty Crocker or Paula Deen, or whatever, all right? It's not just having somebody over to your home for a meal, although that's part of hospitality. Do you know what hospitality was in the New Testament? It was inviting strangers into your life. Oh, yeah. Like people that you wouldn't naturally want to receive, you are welcoming them in. And if there's one thing people outside your comfort zone will do... It stretch you. But do you want to be about the Lord's business until he returns or not? And you're to do it without grumbling. Oh, 
Like, I was fine with all this until you said this without grumbling. I didn't say it. Peter said it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Why? Faith family, hear me. Lakeville, venue, everybody. Love isn't cheap. Love isn't cheap. It will cost you something. It will stretch you. Howard Hendricks, the the late um, professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, used to tell a story about Zippy Dog Food and how the owner of Zippy Dog Food Company gathered his managers together one day and he said, who's got the best packaging? Who's got the best PR? Who's got the best managers? And everybody was like, we do, we do, we do. And then he said, then why are we ranked 17th in dog food companies? And one guy blurts out without thinking, because the dogs don't like it. (laughs) You see, the reason was, is their dog food was cheap. And because it was cheap, it was nasty. Like dogs literally turned their nose like, I'm a dog and I'm not even eating that, all right? And so my point, faith family, is listen, we have a wonderful Savior. We have an inerrant Bible We have an eternal hope. But if we try to have cheap love, the world will not want to eat what we have to offer. You want to be ready for Jesus to come? Here it is. Love one another. Focused prayer. Fervent love. And here's the last one is faithful service. Faithful service. Verse 10, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. Peter is simply saying, God has given you a gift. Use it. Use it. Now, we can debate whether or not Peter's talking about spiritual gifts here. Uh, It's very likely, although it's a little more general in this passage than it is in other passages in the New Testament. But still the point remains that you've been given specific grace, talents, abilities, gifts. Uh, You are not given those gifts to just keep them to yourself. You were given those things to be a blessing to other people. Let me answer two common questions that get asked about spiritual gifts. The first one is, what is it? And maybe some of you are, are new to the Christian faith or, or you're not sure, but what is a spiritual gift? Here it is. Notice it on the screen. A spiritual gift is your unique way of stewarding God's grace to others. It's your unique way of stewarding God's grace to others. That is, here's how you need to view your life. God has given grace to you, Christian. Amen? Like, lots of it. Amazing grace. Abundant grace. And your responsibility in life is to take the grace you've been given and aggressively share it with as many people as you can. You want to be gracious, gracious, gracious. And so you're throwing your grace and you're throwing your grace in the context of serving one another. I am stewarding the grace that God has given me. How? By serving one another. That's what a spiritual gift is. And everyone can do it. Now, how how do I know what my spiritual gift is? Is the second question. I'm going to read from my notes because this is exactly uh, what I want us to get in mind here is this. 
the way you find your spiritual gift is you take every opportunity you can to serve. Did you hear what I said? Take every opportunity you can to serve until you discover a passion. That is, man, I really like doing this. I really love to teach. I really love to provide a meal. I really love to fill in the blank. Like, as I'm serving in a lot of different areas, I begin to, here's the second point, notice a pattern. And so I notice a passion that's developing to do this and a pattern where God keeps bringing this across my path. And then here's the third thing is that you start to receive praise. Now, that's not why you do it. I'm simply saying people start saying to you, wow, I'm so blessed by the way you teach. I'm so blessed by the way you serve. I'm, my life has been so enriched because you did this. And you need all of those. You develop a passion because you're involved out of a pattern that God keeps bringing across your path, and people are responding to say, you are a blessing in my life. Do you notice what I didn't say? I didn't say take a spiritual gift inventory. Now, before you think I'm bashing that, I'm not. I'm just saying Paul didn't distribute those to the church of Corinth. Moses didn't come down off the mountain with the Ten Commandments and a spiritual gift inventory. Jesus didn't go back into heaven and say, oh, by the way, disciples, take these. You can use them as a tool. The problem is they're not inerrant. The way you discover your giftedness is you use your time in the body of Christ and discover where you're a blessing, where you're being a conduit of grace in the lives of others. You say, well, as soon as I figure out what my gift is, I'll get involved. Are you listening? You figure out your gift by getting involved. By serving others, you begin to discover how you can be a blessing to others. I've shared with you before, um, oh, this has been back many, many years ago when I visited the Middle East and had the opportunity to literally float in the Dead Sea. And that is an actual picture of me floating in the Dead Sea. If you know anything about the Dead Sea, you know it's 30% salt content. That's 10 times more than the ocean. There's no plant life, no fish life uh, that lives in the Dead Sea. It's ironically why it's called the Dead Sea. Anyways, so picture this body of water, this body of water that's 50 miles long, 11 miles wide, and it's completely dead. And many of you, some of you know why it's dead, because it has no outlet. That is, minerals run from the Sea of Galilee and the Jordan River and then dump into the Dead Sea, but they don't go anywhere. In other words, right here, Lakeville Venue, you got to get this. The reason the Dead Sea is dead is because it's all receiving and no giving. Christian, you wonder why you're just kind of stagnant? It's because you've been given opportunities to bless the lives of other people. You've been given gracious gifts. Use them to serve. I'll get an email over this, but I don't care. People consumed with the end times do not fill up prophecy conferences. They fill up church nurseries. And if you want to go to a prophecy conference, that's fine. If you like to study those things, that's fine. But I'm saying that's not how you prepare for the end. You prepare for the end by serving one another. So we don't want to waste our life. We don't want to waste our time. 
Because Jesus can return at any moment. So what do we focus our life on? Prayer, love, and serving one another. I'll put this on the screen. Brian, hear this today. If you believe Jesus is coming, pray like it, love like it, and serve like it. If you believe Jesus is coming, pray like it, love like it, serve like it. That's how we prepare for our master to return. That's what well done, good and faithful servant looks like. Now what's the impact of all of this? The last phrase, and I'll close. Notice the purpose statement. In order that, verse 11, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ to him, belong glory and dominion forever and ever. So the purpose of all this, in everything, is the glory of God. Why, why do we do this? We do it because people deserve it. Wrong. We do this because uh, the circumstances of our life make it easy to do it. Wrong. We do it because we want to bring God glory with our life. Because we exist for the glory of God. Because we want our life in this world to be a shining light of God's glory. Peter is simply continuing the theme of holiness. How do you image God? How do you display God in the world? You're set aside to be holy. How do you do that? You do that through submission. And why do you submit? Because what's at the core of the gospel? A Savior that submitted himself to the Father's will. You embrace the suffering that comes in your life. Why? Because it's at the heart of the gospel. Jesus suffered through the cross. So why do you serve? Because it's at the heart of the gospel. Jesus sacrificed himself through suffering to serve you. To serve us. So right here, get this, get this. If Jesus' ministry on earth was submission, suffering, and serving, guess what your ministry is going to be? Why? Because you want to do what your master did. Why? Because you're waiting on him. Philippians 2 verse 5, you know it. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, to be taken advantage of. But he emptied himself by taking on the form of a, say it, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Have this mind among yourselves. In other words, you prepare for your master's coming by living how the master lived. We're a gospel people, right? That's why we submit. We're a gospel people. That's why we embrace God's purposes in suffering. We're a gospel people. That's why we serve. I cannot stress enough that our motivation in the kingdom of God is the fact that we have received the grace of God. It's not because your pastor begs you. 
It's not because of a campaign. It's not because of rules. It's because we're followers of Jesus who has peculiarly served us. And therefore, we will be a peculiar people in the way we serve one another. Faith family, life is full of all kinds of examples like that of Johnny Manziel. Uh, People who wasted their life, wasted their time. These are physical examples of the spiritual warning the Bible gives us. And so today I'm asking you, think about the time that you have. Think about the talent you've been given. Think about the opportunities that you have right now. Why is it so important for you to do that? Here's why. Lakeville venue, everybody right here. Because I have no idea if Johnny Manziel is ever going to come back. But I am absolutely certain of someone who is. And because we believe that day could be any day, we will not squander our lives. And God's people said, pray with me. Father, thanks for your word to us this morning. So convicting and challenging. And I'm trusting that you, by your Spirit, are giving us clarity as to what this looks like in our everyday life. What are those areas of more focused prayer? Where are those areas of more a, of a love that stretches even further for the sake of being a blessing, for the sake of being a gospel witness? Where are those areas that we need to serve and just share out of the grace that you have given so richly to us. We want to be people who are ready when you return. So give us, by your grace, the strength to be faithful till that day comes. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.